Welcome to Not Another Mother Runner podcast. My name is Lisa, and this is not just a podcast about running. This is a podcast to empower women through fitness and health and everything in between. Because let's be honest, ladies, this journey could suck if we don't get our shit together. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Maya, Maya McNulty. She is the CEO of the Biz Marketing PR and Branding Agency, two-time best-selling author, my favorite quotes for entrepreneurs and fundraising secrets. She has worked with thousands of entrepreneurs for more than two decades, creating opportunities for entrepreneurs as one of America's most respected business branding strategists marketer and speaker. Welcome, Maya. Such a pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thank you so much. What an honor. Thank you. Well, you know, first of all, I think people need to know that us trying to get to meet was like, uh, (laughs) it was quite, it wasn't easy, but we finally got to the point where we're meeting each other. So I'm, I'm very happy to finally get to meet you and finally get to talk to you more. Um, so I didn't bring Maya here to talk about being an entrepreneur and and branding, you know, strategist. Um, Maya has a story and it has a lot to do with the pandemic and COVID. Before I say anything else, and I'd rather her tell the story, but first, Maya, tell us a little bit about where you're from and uh, what do you do right now? Sure. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, I live in upstate New York. It's a beautiful time this year because it's springtime and all the trees are starting to bloom again and the flowers. I just noticed some tulips pop up uh, Easter weekend. So I thought that was really special because last year this time I was in a coma. I was um, uh, the first young female in upstate New York to have been come in contact with the coronavirus And I believe I got it at the gym because there was no fact tracing at the time, but that was my only habit at that time. Uh, I was trying to get healthier by going to the gym, um, kind of like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday thing. You know, we all set out to do something. And, um, but I, I believe that's what happened. And I do recall this particular day because I remember having a dialogue with the guy at the front desk and I said, um, how's it going today? And I'm going to change it up today. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to work on my arms because, you know, us ladies, we get that little extra down here. And I figured, okay, let me um, work on my arms. I'm going to do some weights, upper body, and I'm going to do the massage chair because I like most women today have been working from home and you get that neck cramp from being at the computer or just all our stress is carried up that way. So I was going to use the massage chair and then I was going to go to the sauna and treat myself to the sauna. And I never, ever go in the sauna because I just never have the time to do it. One and two, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I was having some muscle aches at that time. So I said, let me treat myself to the sauna. Thought it was a big deal. And I had a little extra time that day. So I said, let me treat myself to the sauna. And when I went into that sauna, I knew that there was a couple cases of the coronavirus happening at my gym. But like many of you in last 2020, 
were not really paying attention to the news and it happening because it was in China and it wasn't really in America. And all of a sudden things were being shut down, but we didn't really know why. But I was starting to dehydrate and dying from my feet up. And March 14th was when I tested positive for the coronavirus. And March 21st, I was hospitalized, dying from my feet up. I was on a ventilator for um, uh, six weeks and traked for six weeks and also um, in a coma for 30 days. And you could see my scars on my neck from where the trach was. And it's kind of red because actually it's, it hurts. Um, it's painful. And I um, get injections, steroid injections. They're called Kenalog injections. They're a little different than steroids. There are steroids, but they're different than um, some other shots uh, like for cartilage. Um, I'm trying to think of what it's called because uh, my mother gets them in her knee and um, but it's not that it's an, a catalog shot with has an, uh, in uh, to reduce inflammation and um, I get them monthly and so it's a little red today because I just got it um, my shot uh, yesterday for my monthly shot so it, it hurts and I have to keep it little wet with Vaseline so that it doesn't get uh, flaky like, um, but it's painful. So I have to always let it be open to breathe. And I spent 69 days in the hospital and I did say to the doctors and nurses, this hurts, this really hurts. And they told me that it was just healing. And I knew it wasn't um, healing the way it should because I have scars. I have other scars on my legs from being a runner and from, um, doing some other activities because I'm a little klutzy and I did get cuts and scrapes and bruises like everyone else. And I, um, I said to them that how, no, it hurts so badly. And it took seven, let's see, that was April, April 25th or 6th, 26th when I got out of the coma, but I couldn't talk. Um, but I would just be like pain, pain, pain. And they didn't understand me. Um, so May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, eight months it took for me to have surgery, about 40 stitches to pull that infection out and then get those um, shots. And I've been getting them monthly since August um, because we thought that might work to reduce the inflammation, um, but it didn't. So then I had to have another surgery. So it's painful. And so my post-COVID life, this is why it's been hard for you and I to get together because between my doctor's appointments and my therapy appointments, uh, it was it was really hard to like get on the schedules uh, of um, communicating with you, even though I wanted to so badly, Lisa. So thank yeah. you so much. No. Okay. So let's, let's back up a little bit here. Okay. So, you know, when you said that you were you know, and I and I remember because you and I both live in the same area where people were talking about COVID, but we were just like, okay, you know, it wasn't like at the point where it's we need to go home and and stay home, and it wasn't this the the pandemic that word that we know so well. So when you were you were just going to the gym, just like every every time you go to the gym, just like a regular person goes to the gym. Mm -hmm. And you said that, so from the time that you went to the gym to the time where you're like, something's going on, what were the symptoms? Like what, what happened between that, that time frame? So the reason I um, started to think that this happened at the gym was 
um, when I went into that sauna and it hit me, I started to dehydrate and I started with body chills and it was a beautiful spring day like it is now in April and uh, it was early March and like I said, March 14th, uh, March 13th was Friday, um, but the next day I went to the hospital and um, I think it just dehydrated me and it just like latched onto me magnetically and it just like it was a Mack truck hit me. I, I didn't know how to, to you know, I, I started to lose my appetite. I was dehydrated. The fever kicked in. And um, it wasn't like I touched the surface, although I feel like I got it from the surface because it was in this room where it was just growing. And I basically walked into a hornet's nest of COVID and it stung me really badly. So you so you leave the gym and you're like something I'm not feeling right. You're you're, right. you're you're feeling all these things. So did you go to the doctors that day or the next day? So what happened was that happened Friday the 14th and my husband was outside mowing the lawn and doing yard work picking up the sticks from the winter and I said I got out of the car and he goes what's wrong? I said I don't feel well. Something is not right. And um I said, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go upstairs and lay down for a little while. And I never left the bedroom until the following morning because I just started with the body chills, the diarrhea, the fever, and I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, something is seriously wrong with me. And for me to drive myself to the emergency room, there had to have been something wrong. Mm. Like I just knew it in my gut because I'm not one. I'm a, I've never had any pre-existing conditions. I'm mm -hmm. a pretty healthy person. And for me to say, okay, I need to go to the emergency room. Something is terribly wrong. And my husband was at work. So I couldn't tell him like, hey, I need your help to drive me to the emergency room. So when I went, they gave me two bags of IV. And that should have been a inclination saying that something's wrong. Like your body shouldn't be that, that dehydrated. Because I do drink like 60, 90, 100 ounces of water a day. I, this is like my hip detached. And, um, and so I said that how something is terribly wrong. And then they tested me for pneumonia because they could tell that something was wrong. And <coughs> I didn't have pneumonia. And the results for that came back straight away. But the COVID they had to, which was known as the coronavirus at the time, had to be sent out. And so by Monday, not a lot of people were being tested, but nor did they have a lot of tests. And so seven o'clock in the morning, the Department of Health in my doctor's office called and said, you have tested positive for the coronavirus. You need to quarantine for 14 days. So I started to quarantine and I told my husband he came home from work. And at that time, because I was coughing so much and I had went to the doctors, he was sleeping on the couch because I was keeping him up and he works at seven in the morning. And I just didn't want to keep, you know, he didn't want to be next to me being sick because he couldn't get sick and whatever. But we thought we just had a cold or a flu or something. But then what was coronavirus? And it certainly is not just a flu. Right. When they gave you that that result, when they said, hi, you know, you have coronavirus. At that moment, what were you thinking? Because we still didn't know a lot about it. I mean, this is still early March. What were going through? What was going through your mind at that time? That's a great question. So originally, Lisa, I thought I did something terribly wrong. I thought uh, that I picked up like AIDS. I thought uh, I had this like scarlet letter written on my chest. And how was I going to 
tell my family that I've been infected with this disease. Mm. And I didn't have any knowledge of what it was capable of or what the outcome is it transmittable? Like, am I going to be able to be the mom that I want to be um, or the wife or spouse that I need to be? Um, and I basically was just laying in bed hopeless because I didn't know what happened to me, except I needed to recover in 14 days. And, um, I told my husband that how, um, I like lost my appetite and I started to have diarrhea and I couldn't shower on my own and all these things were happening to me, but I still wanted to like freshen up for the day because I didn't want to lay like a vegetable, but I didn't have the energy to do it. And then he would try to get me to eat. And I said, I, I, I would start hallucinating, making things up. I need oranges. I need French toast. I need um, grilled cheese. I, I, would, I want tangerines. Like, they're just weird things to say that I wanted. And he'd be like, okay, here's some soup. I wouldn't eat it. Then here's here's grilled cheese. I wouldn't eat it. And I said, oh, well, let me have some Jello. So he had to go to the store because it's not like I have Jello in the house. And so he went and got me Jello, which is still in the fridge, by the way. <laughs> and um, I'm like, I don't know, because I don't think Jello goes bad. I don't think, you know, the um, ones in the little packs. Mm-hmm. So it's still in the fridge. And I said to him, um, I never ate it. But what happened was it was up in the room and it melts, you know, so it ended up going all over my rug. And I hadn't been up in my bedroom for well the 69 days that I was in the hospital. And then six months later, when I got home, because I wasn't physically able to go up the steps. Uh, my husband had carried me down the steps um, because I was dying from my feet up when he brought me to the emergency room. So I hadn't been up there yet. And I did find like a crime scene jello, belted jello <laughs> all over the rug. And I'm like, what happened here? And he's like, that's when you wanted jello. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, because I was like, I couldn't bend. And I was trying to flick it with my fingers. Like, can I scrape it up? Right. And um, he's like, no, it doesn't come out. And I'm like, oh, okay. So jello really stings. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, so they, they just said, okay, quarantine for 14 days. And you're quarantining for 14 days, and obviously you, you weren't getting any I didn't better. make it 14 days. I was starting to die from my feet up come that Wednesday, which was about St. Patrick's Day, um, the 17th. And, um, and my husband said, you have to get to the hospital. And I told him, I'm not going. They already told me that, to, like, I was already there. They said to um, quarantine, like, there's nothing they can do to help me. But when my husband carried me down that Saturday morning, because I was, or Saturday afternoon, because I literally was dying. I, he said, your face was blue, your lips were blue, like I gave you an ultimatum. I said, you need to either go by ambulance or I'm carrying you down the steps and putting you in the car and taking you to the emergency room. He said, well, let me freshen. And um, I couldn't, I couldn't freshen. I, I was, he carried me down the steps on his back into the car. And when I got there, all I can remember was, I don't even know if I registered. Um, It was two people came out to get me from the car, put me in a wheelchair and they said five, four, three, two, one. And I, I, you go to sleep now. And I didn't wake up for 34, 35 days in ICU. Okay. Let's talk about that. Okay. (laughs) So for 35 days, you were out. Mm-hmm. you don't do you you don't remember anything you didn't hear anything you didn't see anything nothing no okay so what happened was did they put you in a, in a coma yes okay and just for those who don't understand that 
I mean, I do, but if you can explain, why do they do that? So the novel coronavirus was really a loop in the hospital. Like what alerted a lot of the doctors and nurses and ICU, especially even um, the intake at the emergency room, the, the news was it only happened to elderly people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here I came in being a young female. So already put them on alarm, like, wait, this could happen to me and mm. my family. And so it scared them. And um, they put me in the coma because they didn't know what else to do to save my life. And my husband was relentless. And I don't care what it takes to save my wife's life. And so I believe that putting me in a medically induced coma gave them time to research uh, time to get the right medicines. Uh, the staff, it was every single doctor at Ellis Hospital that was on the team to uh, help me survive. I was being fed through my nose and later after the first 35 days into my stomach. So it was a long time I was being tube fed. So that helped me to not um, have those muscles in my neck and throat to be able to swallow food. So I had to start with pureed and liquid foods. Um but I believe it was uh, the, I think the coma saved my life. Mm-hmm. I think it was strategic on their part to put me in a medically induced coma. I think it also helped to, for them to buy time to see mm-hmm. what they can do to help me. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I'm not a medical expert, but I'm grateful for them that, you know, I think that they did the right thing in putting me into a medically induced coma. When you're in a medically induced coma, you do not, um, uh, your your brain is still waving, your heart is still going, but you're not cognitive. You're not able to move. Um, you're just kind of sedated and yeah. you're not able to vocalize. Um, you're not hearing anything. You're not dreaming. You're not anything. You're, you're just getting pumped up with um, medicine. Uh, they're taking your vitals. They're taking blood. Um, they're testing, making sure your, your vitals are good. Like, um, and then your like potassium, magnesium, like all your nutrients and vitamins are good in your body. Um, and they're also giving you, um, steroid injections for inflammation. They're giving you all kinds of medicines to help you to, to heal and recover and to kill the thing. Um, they say a lot of times it was just time, right? 14 days and you're going to be okay. But I was at the death point, um, my lungs collapsed, all three of my lungs had collapsed and my family was told to come and say goodbye. My husband was told to call our daughter um, and to expect the worst and for her to come home and say goodbye to her mom. And so those were some hard things to swallow um, for my child when it was exam time as well. And so she had to go back when I got home to uh, go take, well, she got, that was in, um, March when she came home t- to say goodbye, or maybe April. I, school might have been remote at the time. I, I really don't know because I was in a coma. And then when I was in a coma, they changed it from coronavirus to co- um, COVID-19. COVID. So that even messed me up. I'm like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, so I was like, oh, that's what I have. Okay. So now let's go to when you woke up. And what were you thinking when you woke up? Like, what were the first thoughts that came across your mind? Well, interestingly, when I woke up, it took, it took like 10 days for my body to um, uh, kind of eject all that medication that was in. So I still wasn't truly cognitive. So I was still in like a sedative kind of coma, but an alert 
state, responsive state, but I wasn't responsive. Like I could possibly move a finger or so. Like I couldn't get up, sit up. I couldn't walk. Um, I I couldn't communicate because I couldn't talk. Um, it took a long time, um, probably three the first three weeks when I got transported to rehab and um, for me to like get going again and get Hoyer lifted out of bed to do, do therapy. It was the first week that when I was there, but the therapy consisted of me just being Hoyer lifted out of bed into a wheelchair and then back into bed. That took an hour. Um, remember I was just dead weight with a machine. A Hoyer lift is, is sort of like a crane that mm-hmm. snaps onto you, pulls yeah. you out of bed and then puts you in the wheelchair yeah. back up and they do it all with caution and safety. So, um, so that not only is the medical team safe, but also the patient. So I, those were the first times that I was moving after being in a vegetable state. But what did I think? I didn't know where I was. I didn't understand why it was um, April 26th. I didn't understand what happened to me. And because I was just in a vegetable state, I said to God, just, take my life if I'm going to be in a vegetable state. And every night I would pray that how whatever this is that I have, please take it out of my body, lift it out of my body, break it into a million pieces and shatter it at the end of the world and sweep it off so that no one will ever find it because it is so painful and no one deserves to feel this type of pain. And to this day, I'm still having the pain in my neck, like right now I'm talking, but it's, it's like sharp glass, shards of glass um, that sometimes I get it in my palms, the shards of glass feeling or in my chest. I get a lot of Charlie horses. And as a runner, I'm sure that a lot of these can relate to the Charlie horses. But now imagine your Charlie horses going into your toes and crossing all your toes and then into mm. your ankle and then up your legs and then into your arms and doing that to your fingers and then into your ribs, your back and front and then happening to your jaw. Those are all things that are happening to me post COVID 10 and a half months. And May 28th will be one year that I'll be out of the hospital. And of course I'll be having champagne that day and celebrating, but every milestone that I've achieved in my health and recovery, I celebrate and I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the family and friends around me. I'm grateful for for you, Lisa, for sharing the story because I think that it will save lives. I think that how your audience will appreciate that how we take things for granted. For me, just smelling the trees and putting my feet in mud or lifting my own dinner plate or putting a load of laundry in or emptying the dishwasher those are like what woman wants to vacuum or empty a dishwasher? Probably nobody, right? But for me, those are all rebirth milestones that I took for granted before. And I'm grateful that I have dishes that I can make dirty and make clean and put away into my cupboards. Like I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the clothes that I can wear and I can wash. I'm grateful for my hands to be able to do that again. And And there was a time where I wasn't able to do any of that. And it plays on your mental health. I'm an independent person. I went from being independent to codependent. I went from speaking on national stages with my books to barely speaking 
to not even being able to do my own podcast because I couldn't even speak. I just got my voice back in December. Can you imagine not having your voice? I sounded like Mart Simpson for months and, um, and Minnie Mouse. I lost all my hair, my hair starting to grow back and I do pull on it thinking it's gonna grow a little bit more. <laughs> so, so I'm ha- happy about that. I, I still have bald spots and stuff, but um, you know, there's spots in here that are bald, but I just comb it so that it doesn't <laughs> show. But there was a time I didn't have any hair, but now I'm seven months and my hair is growing back and I'm so happy about that. So let me ask you this, okay? Because this is what normally happens with with people who have some some sort of and it's traumatic it's a traumatic experience and there's these different stages that people go through when they have these uh, traumatic experience and of course everybody is different mm-hmm. so you know some people go through the um why me stage you know and then the i'm grateful stage like what was what did it look like for you and and you know and I, I want you to explain this because this is all normal, these things that people feel when they're going through these things. But what was the stage? You know, you even said the first thing was for you was, why did I get, you know, why did I, why me? Why did I get this? Mm-hmm. So then what was the next, what were the next stages till you got to the point where you are now, where you're just like, Listen, I'm just happy that I'm sitting and I can feel this couch and chair. And, you know, what did that look like in between from from that first moment to now? I feel that um, mentally there's a lot of us who have never experienced trauma that we have to learn. I also feel that how we have to ask for help. We have to be willing to accept help and do the motions of it. So we have to ask for it, accept it, and then do it. Like if you're going to ask for the help, do it, follow up on it. I feel that when I first got the coronavirus and I felt like I wore the scarlet letter, I was really embarrassed. And how was I going to tell the story? And then not that it gave me confidence, but I was really embarrassed about it. And then I thought, okay, let me turn this lemon into lemonade. And it might be sour lemonade, but let me do it. And I started to think, I had friends that are in the media because that's what I did my pre-COVID life was worked in the media and PR and branding and marketing. And so when my friends noticed that I was missing from the scene, Maya's MIA, where is she? And they had no idea that I was in the hospital, but when they did, they covered the stories and they empowered me to tell the story and to not be embarrassed and not be afraid that the story is going to save people's lives. It's going to enrich their lives and mentally prepare them for what's coming next and mentally elevate them so they don't feel alone. And I thought that if I was given this purpose because I had um, reached God and my husband had a brother that passed away at two years old, never met him. I met my husband when I was in my 20s, 19, 20 years old. And um, I met, never met Bobby, but I met Bobby in heaven and Bobby never spoke to me. But when I was at the gate with them and we were talking, <coughs> well, I did all the talking because I was like, where am I? Um, but they never talked back. And um, I remember thinking, why aren't you letting me into this gate? Like, why can't I go there? 
And, um, and I heard this voice that said, it's happening for you, not to you. Mm. And, and I thought, okay, so this is why my media friends are saying, let's tell my story. Let's see how many people we can impact and resonate. Let's, let's help. Let's give hope. And I was, I guess that's my purpose. I'm not saying I was chosen, but it was my purpose. I wanted to be that girl that was speaking on national stage stages with my book. I wanted to be that girl that was doing my podcast. I wanted to be that girl that was empowering other women and other entrepreneurs. But now I'm chosen to empower those that were never had health conditions that have no path to share their story or no one to believe what they're saying is my mental health hurts. How do I get help? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've been positioned to help them and I didn't choose it. It was chosen for me. And the more people that ask me to share my story, to respond, uh, I go on this principle. There's one a principle from thinking to rich. And I always remember the triangle effect of that. And one is you have to have the burning desire. Well, I didn't really have the burning desire to tell my story of COVID survival because I thought I was wearing the scarlet letter. Mm-hmm. However, once I started to have that team, my dream team of empowerment behind me, I thought, okay, let's do it. So one of the things that we had to have was to take massive action behind it to make it work, to tell our story and tell it consistently. <laughs> and then we had to have faith, the faith that it's all going to work out and the principles behind that book. And if you can resonate with having burning desire, having to take massive action and having faith, then it'll work out for you because you've, you're willing to learn, you're willing to listen, you're willing to pivot, you're willing to do the work that needs to be done to help yourself and to help others, to lift others up with your arms. So I feel like I was I was put in the position and... and um, and I'm doing it. That's what I want to do now. Yeah. A couple of things you said gave me some chills here. So the first thing is that, did you feel like as you kept telling your story, because I know that this is, I know you've been telling your story. Do you feel that every time you tell your story, you almost feel like a little bit even more empowered and maybe some strength within you as you keep on telling your story? So there's a couple reasons, and that's a good question. Sometimes I feel really scarred from it because I have scars that remind me, but I turn that around as those are my badge of honors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like, gosh, I just want to get back to Maya. I want to get back to who I was, but I'm not her. I'm not her anymore. I didn't choose this to happen to me, but it happened for me. Mentally, I am preparing myself to lift others up and to be that rock for them. It's not about Maya anymore. I'm just the vessel. And I do sometimes think it's surreal that because you uncover it and you think, did this really happen to me? I mean, on my one year, March 14th, I was resonated and I told one of my friends who did a story, a one year story. And I said, I can't believe this happened to me. And, um, and I look back on the journey, I look back on photos because we've documented my story and I'm actually going to be on a documentary. Um, and I, I'm thinking, did this really happen to me? But maybe this was the worst case. I mean, the worst case would have been death. But 
maybe I was so close to death that I could not fear people, you know, get fear into them. Because who wants FOMO? Fear of missing out on COVID? Who wants that? So um, <laughs> so maybe I'm just here to be that beacon of hope for someone that, you know, through my story or even through their story. I have people that send me messages every day. Hey, my friend is suffering from insomnia. My brother is in a coma. Uh, my dad just died. Like they send me these heartfelt messages and they're being heard because I've made the position of my time to be available for them to be heard because mental health is a serious thing mm-hmm. and it could hurt somebody seriously. If as sometimes I don't want to be that person, but I was chosen to be that person is the way I'm thinking it. Yeah. So I, I tried to give peace of mind, support, guidance, love, empathy, compassion, and a virtual hug if I can to give that person hope for that day. Right. So let me ask you this question and you don't need to answer if you don't want to. Um, How do you see death and dying now? And well, let me, let me back up. How did you used to see it prior to this time versus now? I mean, was there a change in your thoughts in it? Sure. There certainly was. I can tell you that how my pre-COVID life, I was felt invincible like you would when you're a teenager. That you don't have to follow the rules. The rules were meant to be created and broken and they're not all that, you know, you you could do things that are beyond your capability and you just have to want to. And when I passed away, because I, re- I go with tomorrow's not promised. It's not promised to anyone. And I know what the other side looks like. And it is pretty. It is pretty. It is oceans. It is fish. It is trees. It is greenery. It's lilac uh, flowers and fields and fields and fields of flowers. They're beautiful people. They're dressed beautifully. They're young. They look like they're in their 30s. There are children. There are moms, their dads. No one was old looking. They were about 30, 33, 35 years old. Um, <clears throat> I saw clouds, but they look like cotton candy. And um, there's other people that I spoke to about this um, afterlife, if they believe in it or if they don't. Um, I'm Hindu. I believe in it, but I thought maybe I'd come back as an eggplant, but now I know I don't want to do that (laughs) because I've already lived a vegetable life and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not looking to do that. But, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, (laughs) so, but I do believe that there's an afterlife. I do believe that there's a heaven. I was there and I swam in oceans for a long time to get there through fish and I can remember swimming and swimming and swimming and the fish just shaping your body as you went through. And then I got to the fields and moms holding their daughter's hands and walking in them. And yeah, so I was there. And so I believe in it and I saw it. And if anyone has ever passed away, they would know that that is true because they also saw the fields and the oceans and the fish and they, they saw it. So having that experience, would you say that you fear death? I don't fear it because I believe that when my purpose is over, um, 
clearly my purpose wasn't over yet why I was here and that's why I'm spared I guess but when my purpose is fulfilled my chore my task then I'm ready to go I do believe that um it isn't a bad place up in heaven it isn't it's it's very peaceful and um and I feel like once we're fulfilled where we're needed to be um some people say that how you know like I've seen friends die of cancer and they've died way too young and they hurt and they um you know because they're dying from their feet up and they're leaving young kids and why do young kids get that but I don't have answers for all that I do know though for myself that whatever we're doing here on earth is is our chore that's like our task Mm -hmm. once once our task is is completed then we get we go on to something else but I don't know what that is but I do know that there is a heaven because I was there so let's talk about your relationship with your daughter and your husband, how has that changed since pre-COVID? Well, my daughter's uh, 20. Uh, She's in uh, college studying medicine, uh, neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's still sassy, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but she is loving. um, You know, she texts me just about every day. She always tells me, mom, keep fighting. Uh, I know that she's seeing it in the hospital and I'm thinking that how she probably will use her mom's story. Like, listen, my mom did this and she's, um, she's surviving. She's kicking butt, you know, she's badass. And, um, and I'm glad that she could use my story to give people hope in the hospital. Um, My husband, he um, thinks I talk a lot now. Uh, I went from not talking to talking. He says, I'm pretty demanding. So I feel like our our marriage is on track and we're back. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's yeah, good. After 22 years, um, I, yeah, he, he's, he's, I love him. He's been my rock. He's been supportive. He never pressures me to get healthier. He just wants me to get healthy, but he says he knows I'm going to do it on my time because he knows where I was. I'm very fortunate where there's a lot of people that go home. They're a the single parent. They're, they haven't seen their um, loved ones in the nursing home for over a year. They don't have family or friends. It's hard. It's hard for them to even be able to communicate what they're going through mentally, emotionally, physically, financially. It's taking a toll on a lot of people. But being lonely is is even worse than being financially lonely, you know, like mm-hmm. financially. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So it's it's tough. Um but, um, you know, I started COVID wellness clinic uh, on Facebook groups to have people to be able to share their stories so they don't feel like they're alone. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I didn't know that you you sent that information to me. So tell us what that is. So I thought about starting a support and recovery clinic because once I phase out of hospital care, like nurse care, occupational therapy, physical therapy, voice therapy, vocal pathology, speech. Where do I go to from there? My pulmonologist doesn't want to see me for the rest of my life, or I don't want to see him or my cardiologist. So where do I go to from there? Because COVID isn't a switch that you just turn off and it goes away. 
long haulers is a new breed of survivors. We're a new breed of survivors and we have to have different levels of support and recovery. And the fact that I am a long hauler and know exactly what they're feeling, I thought perhaps I will start a COVID group. So I started a COVID wellness clinic on Facebook, excuse me, physically, mentally I'm fine. Physically, I don't have the capability to run a brick and mortar business at this time. So I started to file the 501c3 and develop my board member. And so we have five or six board members now for COVID wellness and some are lawyers, doctors, um, marketing, um, and uh, infectious disease. So I've got a really nice board um, to couple COVID wellness. And um, our goal is to give them support, recovery guidance for their families, for themselves, and also be able to teach them some of our therapies through wellness. So some of it might include sleep therapy, wellness therapy, nutrition, cognitive therapy, strength training. Um, Those are some of the things that I'd like to implement. Also, right now, I believe with plasma, I know that my husband was like, I'll give him my blood, but you had to have had COVID in order to have the plasma. So I don't know if the vaccine will create that plasma that you need or if you need it from natural antibodies and not a vaccine antibody. So to have a location that plasma can be taken from you to save lives because I didn't have it when I needed it. And also to maybe partner with like the American Red Cross for blood donations. So they'd have a physical site that they could do both um, because those are important for a long hauler. And a couple other things that I thought would be beneficial to long haulers, like um, just being able to sit and talk, talk it out. Um, And this is something that I've been advocating for since I was able to talk um, like a mouse and um, get it out to Congress and uh, form a couple relationships with people that are in Congress to help them to uh, listen to what we're talking about for recovery and support. And I I have Dr. Fauci's information because he did call me when I was in the hospital to see how the remdesivir was working. And I wasn't able to talk because the caseworker spoke to him and my physical therapist, but at the time, Um, I was able to get his contact information, his staff information, so that I can thank him in my own voice, one for reaching out to me, and also Albany Disease, Infectious Disease is working with me to uh, do campaigns around long hauler. But of course, like I said, it's when I have the strength to do it. So somehow I've been empowered and I'm empowering people along the way to share their journey and their story. There's so many people that even cancer survivors have said, even empowered me to share my story. Like I wish I shared it from the beginning. And I did, I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to share it, but it's just, you know, my friends and media pulled it out of me and now I'm really grateful for them and grateful for it. Yeah. And I'm glad that you, you are, you're, you are telling your story and you are empowering other people and you are possibly saving lives because of it. So you I'm know, definitely, definitely saving lives. I'm, hundred percent sure on that. So many people have reached out to me. My inbox is flooded with gratitude and hope. And, um, 
And I think sometimes I'm going to need a virtual assistant for some of this because <laughs> there's so much of it. And it's 24-7 because it's people all around the world. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so amazing. Okay, yeah. so where can people go to this? Because you said it's on Facebook. So what's the handle sure, on Facebook? Sure. So a couple of ways people can get in touch with me is definitely they can go to myamcnulty.com. Um, myamcnulty.com. And if they're interested in um, connecting with other long haulers, they can go to um, COVID Wellness Clinic. We have a Facebook page and we also have a group page. The group page is where we offer a little bit more value, whereas the um, page on Facebook, just the regular page is um, a little conversation, but not as much as the real um, deal that we share heartfelt wise on the group. COVID wellness. So there's a two different um, ways that we connect on there. So yeah. Oh, and I forgot we do have oh. Instagram as well. COVID wellness on Instagram. Oh, it's on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we'll definitely put all of that in the show notes yeah. on in the, yeah. the links to the, on the show notes, but there is just one question I wanted to ask sure. you. Please. And the question is this. So mm-hmm. if you were to think about all your experiences that you, you, you had with this, with this having COVID, mm-hmm. what is the one thing that when you look back, and I know that it's hard to think, wow, this still ha- this you st- probably still think, did this really happen to me? Like, my God, this happened to me. But what is one thing that you can think of that you say that was definitely very positive that came out of this whole situation? I think that everyone should, whether you're male, female, child, young, old, I think everyone should have that mental attitude that you are stronger than you think. The whole time, um, my daughter played soccer in high school and her coach, the wife, um, made me a blanket and I had the body chills because once you get out in the hospital, your whole immune system is, is reprogramming itself and she made me a blanket. And on the blanket, it said you are stronger than you think. And I think that how that helped my mindset be stronger. I also, in the hospital, when I was learning to walk again, I said to myself, I can do it. I can do it. And that's the thing. You have to believe that you're capable of doing anything and everything that is possible. You have to trust yourself. And so having those mental attitudes, that positive mental attitude that you're capable of doing anything, that you are enough, you are enough, and you can do it. You can do anything you want. So I keep saying, I can do it. I sound like a broken record at times because I say, I can do it. I can do it. Because I'm walking with a cane now. And they'll say, <coughs> you need help carrying something? Like your water bottle and the cane at the same time. <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. You know, <laughs> so just have that attitude of, I can do it. Aww. And having that mental attitude of saying, you thinking it, knowing it, believing it, that you're stronger than you think. Yeah. Thank you. That I really appreciate you being here and telling your story and being very vulnerable. And I really appreciate you uh, for that. And I know that you're definitely, well, we know you're definitely doing the good, the good work and I wish you the best. And I know I'll probably keep seeing you with, you know, as you progress. And I know you're just getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, 
I'll just be waiting for that, uh, you know, that story of you running or walking crazy and, you know, back to, and I don't want to say back to normal, I'm doing the air quotes, but it's, you know, where you want to be. Um, so I'm looking forward to that and I'm enjoying the progress and I'm, and also thank you for sharing the progress. You know, you're sh- literally sharing it. You know, it's been a year or you said it's, uh, yeah, it's been a year. And you're literally sharing your progress and to see you stronger. I, th- I know that last time we tried to, t- we tried to get together, you still had difficulty with your speech and now look at you. Now we're having this discussion. And if that's not something that is it, th- giving you some strength that yes, this is just going to keep going up and up and up. I don't know what is. So thank you so much for sharing your story. I am so grateful to have you in my space. And I know the listeners are grateful for you to be in in their space. So thank you so much, Maya. I really appreciate this again. I really appreciate you too. Thank you so much for sharing your stage and your platform and having me being a guest here. I hope that today's segment inspired someone and it gave them the power um, to empower themselves. Um, You know, you just have to have that burning desire. You have to have the take massive action and you have to have faith. So I believe that um, that's a good formula for success. Yeah, that's the, it's perfect. It's action. I love it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, once again, thank you so much. And thank you for being here. And thank you, everybody. And until next time, bye. Bye.